Hello and welcome to Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's weekly look at the news agenda. Although, of course, today we're going to be looking back at the year's events. Um, maybe for you it hasn't been as bad as 2020, although I think it's a very, very uh, close-run thing. Uh, we've had a coronation. There's a continuing war in Ukraine. We had the worst attack on uh, Jewish people since the Holocaust. And, of course, the continuing story of woke infiltration into our institutions and universities ongoing. Is that on its way out? Has it peaked? We're going to be looking at those issues. I'm delighted that we're being joined, uh, as usual, by Rafe Hadelman Koo, our senior fellow, royal commentator and historian, and Amy Gallagher, uh, the lady behind Stand Up to Woke campaigner. Good to see you again. And Patrick O'Flynn, uh, joining us again, uh, columnist for The Spectator and former member of the European Parliament. Um, I thought it might be quite good to start on, you know, a happy event, the coronation. Um, first of all, did you, did you get involved in it, Patrick? Um, I watched it on television. The weather wasn't great was where, where I was. Um, it, it was quite emotional. I, I not massively been a fan of Prince Charles, but I thought he came, oh, sorry, King Charles, I yeah, must now yeah, say. Yeah. But I thought he, he came across as really uh, fixed on doing his duty uh, mm. for the nation. And I think it, it underlined to me how important the monarchy is. And anyone who that was a Republican that I knew was saying this is all, you know, old hat. Well, you know, if we had the, the election for a president, would you be voting for Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson mm. or Nigel Farage or Sadiq Khan? And do you think they would be able to unify the country afterwards? So yeah. um, I, I thought it was um, handled as, as well as it could be, given the uh, figurative big shoes he was stepping into. I mean, you obviously covered it, didn't you, uh, for GB News and for a Canadian TV as well? Rafe, um, interestingly, although they said it was going to be a much smaller coronation than the Queen's, and in fact it was, but there was something about the way in which it was filmed for television this time, which looked extremely historic, um, and it was actually the intimacy of it. I think intimacy is the word for it. It, was, it felt very different to the Queen's coronation, because of course back then cameras didn't have zoom lenses and they all had to be quite far back in the Abbey not to intrude on other people. So it did have one of those sort of filmed in Panavision sort of 1950s yeah. style looks to it. So it seemed that seemed more majestic as opposed to the intimacy of this occasion, mm. where actually we came right up to the king's face as at the moment he was crowned, sitting, sitting in the coronation chair, which I always felt like I was intruding on a very personal, sacred moment mm. for him. But it was actually, yeah, so it was a very different take on the coronation, but it went down extremely well. Um, and we, you know, those of us who are sort of, you know, niche experts on these subjects have, can find numerous reasons to get annoyed. But for the general public <laughs> as a whole, I think it, I think it was a very good piece of, a piece of theatre. Mm. And I know there was a huge amount of relief because there had been such trepidation and such tension mm. within the royal household as to how the king would be received by his public uh, after the death of, after the death of his mother. And then in the run-up to the coronation, a moment when the whole nation should be galvanizing around the king, we had so many unfortunate stories about wayward members of his family, distracting, trying to mm. steal the limelight, that, they, that, that he seemed to have every disadvantage being put before him, and he still managed to pull it off with, with greater plum. And I think it was a triumph, and I think it reassured us all that the Britain that we were told 
has died a death is still alive and well in this country. You're nodding along there, actually, mm. Amy. I mean, did you, did it kind of, did it have any emotional sense for you at all? Yeah, it, 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 it ran a sort of chill down my spine on several occasions watching it. I thought it was mm. beautiful in terms of the interplay between the religious aspect of it. Um, I felt a rare moment of pride for the Church of England, actually, which, yeah. I, which I don't often feel. Yeah. And, um, you know, all the constitutional elements of the monarchy and how they intertwine with Christianity. And you felt that you were witnessing something that's, you know, you saw almost like a thousand years of breathing through it. Mm. And it, I, I, yeah, that really felt very meaningful, actually. And it was, yeah, I think it was probably the highlight of the year. And I was also struck by how there wasn't many, you know, given it how much strong of an attack there's been on our traditions and our institutions mm. over the last two, five, ten years or so on. Um, there wasn't much of a protest actually in response no. to it. There was a few people holding signs, not my king and so on. But actually you thought, I thought I was quite surprised that, that generally, I don't know if it's because people were just disinterested, it, it may be, or there's an, an indifference towards the monarchy, but they're actually, you know, it seemed to be mostly public support, actually. Well, apparently something like 19 million people watched it, mm. uh, which, you know, what, Diana's funeral got 32 million, say. Mm. But then that was 25 years ago now. I mean, essentially, the world has changed in terms of people watching and how they watch. But I, mean, I, I agree with you. I thought the music was simply sublime, actually. That's where they really did well. Well, of course, it's things like coronations that make you realise what a great contribution they are to, to our culture and global culture. You know, we think, you, know, you just have to look back. William Walton, Elgar, you know, Parry... Uh, you know, even Handel and George II, we got, you know, Zadok the Priest. And some of the finest music we know was actually composed for coronations. And our king is actually the most keenly interested in classical music we've had for several generations. And the, mm -hmm. the music he commissioned, I thought, was absolutely stirring. And I'm always a bit, you know, iffy about modern classical music. And there were some pieces there which I thought easily could stand there, stand there and against things from 100 or 200 years ago. It was actually, that was one of the finest things culturally. In terms of legacy, yeah. I would say that was one of the greatest uh, aspects of it. The thing, the thing is with it, is that it's all happened against, as you alluded to, a kind of background of this endless sort of Harry and Meghan circus mm. going on. Um, I think this year really, don't you think they ended it a busted flush, really? Um, I do. I, th I think the point is as well, and, and William and, and Kate are part of this, you can just outlast Harry and, and Meghan mm. by doing what the royal family does, uh, yes. doing your duty, you know. Uh, I think that to use a football terminology, the spine of the team is pretty strong. Yeah. You know, you, you've got the, the, the king and queen, you've got the prince and princess of Wales. Their mm. oldest son has clearly got a, a sort of mature head on young mm. shoulders. And, and I think we're, we're looking at people who aren't uh, egotists and aren't flash for, for its own sake. And, and we can probably see the monarchy lasting certainly for all of my lifetime and, and beyond well yes that's the point really i mean so it's, it's like you know i remember you know growing up in the 70s uh, i've said this so many times i know but if you'd said we actually would have a monarchy in the year 2023 people wouldn't have necessarily believed you i i think you know it was you've got to remember this was the era of the sex pistols and all mm. of that and, and even though the, you know the, the sort of foundation of support has always been strong it is remarkable, I mean, for young people watching that ceremony with the glove and with this and with the canopy and all of this, it, it's, 
entirely new to them, isn't it? So in that way, television's a wonderful way, isn't it, for you know, passing on traditions in that mm. way. And also giving, I mean, as Amy said, this is a lesson in our constitution. Mm. You know, the American constitution is a piece of paper behind glass. Yes. We actually have the living embodiment of the constitution through the sovereign, who embodies not only the constitution, but our, our history going back for a thousand years. But the ceremony of the coronation, where you have parliament assembled, where you have the oath of, of, of allegiance, where you have the king promising to respect the laws of this land under the, under the, after the glorious revolution. Every aspect of our constitution is actually played out in some form there, including with our established church. So I think it's the yeah. best way the, through theatre that you can actually educate a nation about the value of our, of our constitution and its institutions. But yeah, I mean, going back to, to Harry and Meghan, if we're doing a year, a year in review, I think, you know, I, I was put best by someone who said it's an annus horribilis, <laughs> because it's been an absolute disaster. I mean, this year from the publication of Spare in January to the publication of, of Endgame by Omid Scobie, you know, selfie stick in waiting to the Duke and Duchess. I think the whole thing has just been a disaster after a disaster. And they've now been voted by Hollywood Reporter, which is a very influential magazine in Hollywood, mm -hmm. as the biggest, loser, <laughs> biggest losers of the year. And uh, I think finally people have realised that, you know, they are essentially a, a completely uh, collapsed entity and item. Their star status was always related to their proximity to the royal family. And the more they're left out in the cold by the royal family, who haven't deigned to respond to anything mm. and have just carried on their business in that wonderfully business-as-usual yeah. sense, I think that's been the solution. And I think we can just expect them to, to, dis to fade ever more into the distance. Did you, did you uh, read it? Did you read that Harry book? No, I saw excerpts for it, but I didn't read it. No, no, gosh. I bought it. I oh, bought did it. You? All, well, yeah, I kind of bought it out of a sort of I don't know quite what, but it was just like everyone was buying. It. I just <laughs> bought it to just to, to flick through. Oh no! Um, but apparently, it was the fastest-selling non-fiction book in history in this country. Mm. I think. But it was the most damaging book for him. That's that mm. was the main point. It mm. was such an such an own goal, and actually led to so many of his formerly loyal supporters actually realizing this is just simply a spoiled baby. Did, did anyone watch their documentary? You know that no, one Netflix thing. I remember the scene. I think this is this year's documentary where Meghan did the impersonation of her curtsy That's to the it, Queen, yeah, yeah. which was absolutely toxic. Yeah. It was disrespecting our, our most revered yeah. monarch in a sort of me, me, me way. Yeah. And I think if there was one moment that killed the Harry and Meghan brand beyond a tiny cadre of supporters, uh, that was the moment. That was the moment the British public made up their minds. It was I disgusting. I, ha I had the cruel and unusual punishment of having to sit through all six hours of it in a Ooh. cinema that GB News <laughs> hired. And we watched it live. I felt like that character in Clockwork Orange, you know, had its eyes <laughs> having to endure that. So I swore never again will I watch anything of theirs. <laughs> Going back to the coronation, one thing about it wasn't that, uh, wasn't that woke, actually, that one mm. could see. Um, stand up to woke, of yes. course. Um, Oh, have we seen any rolling back of the tide? Well, just generally. Yeah. I, I was going to say, in, res in, in relation to Prince Charles, I mean, he, he recently attended COP28 and gave this speech about net zero and green, which I can't imagine the Queen ever doing. Oh, so he's already... Man. No, yeah. of course mm. not. And he, you know, he makes these gestures about... I think he commissioned a study into the... Um, 
looking at the links between slavery and the monarchy. Yes. So there are elements of Charles that yeah. are... And I actually think Harry and Meghan somehow managed to help Charles in that they are so awful that you sort of can put up with his, mm. you know, woke elements because he, he managed just to stay dignified and, and quiet in response to, to Meghan and Harry, which somehow you sort of, you know, you sort of think, well, at least he's, you know, he's better than they are. In terms of woke, I mean, just generally... I think what's happening is there is more and more of a chasm between what people are saying and the institutions. I think there's no... Woke is still very much rife in our institutions mm. and they are operating in a complete silo. And, and But more and more people outside of institutions are saying this is, this is rubbish, this is nonsense. Mm. It's being more and more exposed for what it is. Yeah. I think particularly in relation to um, the, the, the Palestine and uh, Israel protests where yeah. you saw people openly being anti-Semitic and the woke mm. were just quiet on that and, and the yeah. hypocrisy is being revealed more and more the illusions are being you know people are becoming more and more disillusioned with, with with woke ideas but I don't see it stopping in terms of the institutions because there are people who are just absolutely as we were saying before we started filming just completely religiously devoted to this and you can't mm. reason somebody out of something that they weren't reasoned into so mm. um yeah, it's just it's becoming more and more of a divide, I think. Um, we, we talk about, obviously, these issues, woke, woke issues a lot on this channel. I mean, do you, does it, Patrick, does it actually affect you in any way? I mean, you know, I see it as part of a general attack on our very existence mm. and our civilization. But often, when you hear politicians they sort of talk about it as though it's a kind of slightly distracting issue. Oh, yes, it's nonsense. Particularly in the Tory party, you get that. They don't quite get it, it seems to me. No, huge swathes of Conservative MPs play into the left's hands by saying we shouldn't start a culture war. The fact yeah. is the identitarian left is waging this culture war yeah. every day. And the, the question is not do you start the war, do you stand up to them, do you contest their appalling ideas. Uh, I do think there's been some progress this year, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll give a plaudit to Kemi Badenoch for persuading Rishi Sunak to show some courage and shoot down the SNP's mm. crazy gender mm. bill, and again in the Commons uh, yes. recently the other week. So I think on that issue mm. of protecting women's spaces and rights, there has been some pushback, and I think it's got some traction on the left among the, the traditional feminist left and some of those uh, Labour, Lib Dem and a big chunk of Tory MPs. Let's not forget Penny Morden stood at the dispatch box and declared in terms trans men are men and trans women are women mm. when she was Boris Johnson's equalities minister. I don't think she'd do that today. I think there has been some swinging back of the pendulum. I think we're, we're known as Turf Island, apparently, aren't we? Uh, which is a badge of honour, um, yes. I think. Are we and known as that? Yes, really? yeah, apparently, certainly uh, in America and, and, and Canada. Turf Island. Yeah, yeah mm. so, so we're, we're the, the place that hasn't swallowed the agenda whole. Um, so I think that's, that's a feather in our caps. I think BLM has been totally exposed as a, as a sort of massive grift. And there's a few people, the Tory MP, Laura Farris, brick back to her, who was the one Conservative MP who knelt 
for BLM during the height of yeah. that craziness. She's been promoted, of course, as a minister in the Home Office of all places now. So uh, Rishi can swing sort of either way on it. But I do think there are, you know, uh, Suella, Liz Truss even, there are people pushing back quite hard now. Mm. And it's beginning to, you know, it's one of the few things the Conservatives do which doesn't cause the electorate to vomit. Yes, I think, I think Pat, Patrick's completely right here. Uh, I think m more people are willing to stand up and say things that perhaps they wouldn't have said five or four years ago. Uh, the question is, what effect is all this happening? Because all we seem to get from the Tories is tough talk, which gets good headlines yeah. in the red tops, mm. but rarely ever actually results in direct, mm. uh, in direct results. And that's, I think, a lot of the problem. People think, oh, well, it's being talked about. Yes, but what actually is happening? And when you see the Irish hate crime bill going forward and how draconian that is, when you see what's happening in Scotland, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if under Labour we get something very similar to that in this country. And that's the great threat is when Labour gets mm. to power. If you think bad, things are bad now, wait till Starmer puts the pedal to the metal or the metal to the pedal, however you say that, uh, because wokeness, we don't think, I don't think we've even got, got anywhere close to peak woke yet. And that's what I find quite scary, particularly when you consider how radically left-wing our youth is today. We have the most radically left-wing youth in history, and unlike in previous generations, they aren't becoming more conservative mm. as they get older. We've mm. never experienced that before because capitalism has failed them. They can't get on the property mm. ladder. And in 20 to 30 years' time, the entire workforce of this country mm. will be left or radically left in some mm. form. And I think that's something we're not prepared to. And it's going to be a, an existential crisis for the Tories as well, because they've made no attempts to actually connect with the youth of today. And their demographic is aging and dying off. You know, we, we know full well that if the, the 2019 election had been held by those under 25, there would have been a landslide for Jeremy Corbyn of over 100 seats. And the Tories wouldn't have had one MP elected. And I have, I've seen no effort by the Tories mm. to actually try to address that. So I think wokedom is actually, we're just at the beginning of a, of a, of a revolution. There are, there are two, there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, you could say woke is a sensibility. And yes, uh, you, you know, very rarely will somebody say, I'm happily and proudly woke. Very rarely. I mean, it's, it's, it's like saying, you know, political correctness gone mad. It, it's, it's not one of those things. But at the same time, people sort of find themselves having to abide by it. But when you talk about these like free speech bills going through, particularly when we saw the recent protests or the recent riot in Dublin, you know, in Ireland, um, and then they took the opportunity to immediately put forward that bill, the hate speech bill, mm -hmm. that is, you say, is really uh, worrying. And I just don't think people are quite aware mm -hmm. of that. You mentioned uh, the SDP, though. That's been, it's been quite a... Well, they've been imploding, haven't they? SNP, yeah. yeah. Sorry, SNP. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that's been another big story of the year is, is, the, is the decline of the SNP. And it's very much linked into Westminster politics because the ability of Labour to get a majority government has always really depended upon Scotland. And it's been the strength of the SNP in Scotland that's been one of Labour's great weaknesses. Mm. And so, by pure coincidence for Keir Starmer, the planets have aligned perfectly for him mm. as he enters into the general election. So, whilst the SNP is a Scottish issue, it actually affects all of us in terms of how things are going to come. But yes, you know, we've spoken for years about how corrupt and what sort of a, sort of a, mm. a, a mafia style party the SNP is and how truly terrible it is on, on many levels and quite nasty. 
and now people are actually beginning to see the degree to which this, uh, this, this corruption and the insidious nature of it has seeped to previously you know, s sanctified members such as you know, Nicola Sturgeon herself, but also with Hamza Youssef and all sorts of uh, odd and curious things that he's been up to. Well, like mm. having meetings with Erdogan. Mm. And I don't know what's, yeah. what's that about. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yes, and I think, you know, notably orientated to the point of obsession with, with Palestine. And yeah. we obviously yeah. had family links, quite why British nationals would have gone to Gaza against official foreign office advice, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, Nicola Sturgeon was a formidable politician, mm. whatever you thought of her. She was a formidable 24 hours a day campaigner and strategist. And, you know, her, we still haven't heard the full story of her departure, have we? But, you know, they haven't got anyone like that. They've clearly hit their zenith and they're on the way down. Mm. And, you know, as a unionist, that's good news. I suspect Labour will get 20 more MPs out mm. of it, um, you know, which, as Rafe was saying, that's going to put them, you know, right on the path to power, even if they weren't doing as well in England relative to the Tories as they actually are. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Sort of, uh, I mean, are you particularly, do you take any interest in... Yeah, I mean, I think the, the optics of the SNP this year have been absolutely awful. I think particularly with this issue of the gender self-ID, where you yeah. had a, this bizarre situation where Nicola Sturgeon was trying to advocate for the rights of a, a male rapist to mm. be in a female prison. Um, and on top of that, she, she had a failed attempt to have another referendum and then resigned quite quickly after um, and then, not soon after that, was arrested. And then there was all these police investigations into various members of the SNP. Um, and it just, you know, it's just, as you say, it's just imploded. And it looks, particularly with the, the now, the elect um, Hamza Youssef being the leader who's very anti-white, doesn't seem to, rep not, very different to Nicola Sturgeon. And the first thing he did when he was elected was to pray. And he's very kind of aggressively Muslim, it feels. Um, and then the, I think I read recently that Alex Salmond is now suing the SNP or the, mm. the government and Nicholas Sturdy. The whole thing's just a mess. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not particularly interested in the SNP as a party. I mean, it, I guess it's just the ramifications it has in terms of yeah. politically, in terms of, uh, as I understand it, they're, you know, in 2024, they're going to lose at least half their seats, if not more. That's the predictions. And the likelihood is that most of those will go to Labour, mm. I, I would suspect. So as much as I don't like the SNP, I, I don't particularly like Labour either. So, mm. um, yeah, and, I, and, and, and again, I wouldn't want the, you know, the breakup of the union either. Where so. does that leave the Tories in Scotland then? I mean, mm. nowhere? You know, there was this brief thing with Ruth Davison, wasn't there? When mm. they were sort of suddenly ascendant. That's gone, hasn't it now? I think that that's very much long gone. And she was, I suppose, she was on the Cameron centrist wing, but mm. she happened to have some presentational pizzazz as well, was very anti-Boris. Remain, um, Remainer. Yeah, re Remainer too. The Conservatives, I think, might not be a total disaster mm. um, in Scotland. They won't get many seats out of it. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that the meltdown is going to happen particularly yes. in England for the yeah. Conservative Party. I think, um, you know, you mentioned there about, uh, you know, this, what we saw on the streets in the, well, the past six weeks, actually, and ongoing, probably as we speak now, um, with the protests 
pro-Palestinian, or I would first say anti-Israel protests. Um, I think that that has been a watershed in some ways, hasn't it? You know, in, in what it's made people realize about, you know, the extent of migration in the country, the complete uh, neglect and complete lack of interest actually shown in our own traditions. If you remember on uh, Remembrance, there was the, one of the biggest demonstrations. Mm. I mean, do you think that, uh, have we, was that some, not exactly a turning point, but that was significant, wasn't it? I, I mean, I went on first demonstration I've been on for God knows how long, which was the campaign for against anti-Semitism. We all went from the NCF, didn't we? And um, moved to do that, therefore. But it was therefore, it was about something more than what was happening, wasn't it, in Israel? Yeah, I think it, I think what we've seen in the last couple of months has been what some of us maybe suspected, but then now it's been very much out in the open yeah. and it, it can't be denied. And it's been very scary. I think you know, you're seeing tens of thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of people um, protesting and, and most of them, a lot of them advocating for very extremist views. I think in the past, when we've had issues of Islamism and ex extremism, people have always said, oh, you know, well, this doesn't represent the majority of Muslims. You know, this is just a very small minority. Mm. And I, I thought a few red flags for me this time was that n nobody was saying that this time. Yeah, you didn't, yeah, you didn't no, actually yeah, see that. Yeah, nobody no. was saying not all Muslims. There was actually tens of thousands of people shout, shouting mm. to the river to the sea, mm. which we all know what is meant by that, waving swastikas, advocating for the genocide of Jews, and nobody was saying, oh, this is just a small minority, either because they realised they couldn't get away with that or because they're quite happy for it to be out in the open. Yes, yes. Um, and that was really quite scary, actually. And another red flag was actually the BBC not calling Hamas terrorists. Mm. I mean, in the previous examples of, of, of terrorism that we've had in this country, mm. people will say, if it, you know, try to play it down, but they will call it terrorism. Whereas this time round, there was a, you know, a debate whether it was even terrorism. And that I feel like it's almost moved now to a yeah. different situation where you think, gosh, this has really ramped up and it's actually a lot more scarier this time round. Yeah, I would say I, I, I approached or I, I felt a sense of frustration and relief actually with this whole thing because, you know, for years we've been talking about you know there being a fifth column present in this country mm. um that they were living a parallel life mm. and too often people were very dismissive of it or thought it was a very minor thing and Frightened of course of we, we, and, fri and you know petrified by political correctness and of course when things happen in, in rotherham places like that they're so far away from the, the media centers of london that they tend to get ignored and pushed up pushed under the carpet and here we saw in the, in the heart of our capital city precisely those same cultural issues, mm -hmm. the lack of integration, and the possession of views that most of us would find abhorrent in the West being openly expressed on the, on the streets of our city. And then uh, along with that, as in Rotherham, the police choosing to look the other way, the, you know, the, the evidence of two-tier policing in our city, mm. and also the way that the BBC, of course, were, were deliberately choosing to avoid the worst excesses of those marches. It just, I think, was a sense of, not, not gratification, but finally people were seeing yeah, yeah. that what we had been speaking yeah, yeah. about wasn't, wasn't a lot of hot air. Yeah. No, I think it's absolutely, that's absolutely it. You know, uh, there can be no doubt about second uh, two-tier policing with the police now. You know, not at all. It, it, they are enforcing political ideas. That's what they're doing, it seems to me. Mm. You know. um, okay, if you can cast your minds back. I mean, it doesn't have to be a highlight. It could be a low light. But I mean, what particularly about this year will you remember? 
Or it might be a very personal thing. For me, um, actually, it fairly recent event, and it's a political thing, uh, was the cabinet reshuffle. Right. I think the day Rishi Sunak listened to William Hague and then sacked Suella Braveman, brought David Cameron back at the same time as he, in an imminent, terrible court defeat on his Rwanda policy, which he hadn't pulled his finger out on and strained every sinew, and then must have known these legal migration figures were in the pipeline too. He's, he basically took a strategic decision after a few sort of bunny hops each way earlier in the autumn to just jump back into David Cameron-style mm. pre-Brexit liberal conservatism. And all the smart people around him, I think, are, are somewhat dumbfounded that it hasn't had a positive effect in the opinion polls. But, you know, to me, I think that would have been the moment where millions of people in the Red Wall, traditional Shire Tories, suddenly thought, no, this wasn't the mandate. No. Well, he wasn't elected on the mandate either. It wasn't even no. his to blow. But he made the big strategic choice as if the last uh, seven years was... You know, people say the Bobby Ewing shower scene. I don't know if Amy's old enough to know the <laughs> from reference Dallas, but yeah. from Dallas yeah. when uh, when the hero uh, was killed off in one series and then walked out of the shower yeah. the next series because uh, it was all a dream. It was all a dream. <laughs> yeah. So Brexit, all a dream. What about you? Doing? Yeah, it's funny you should say that because I agree. But for me personally, the sack, the combination of the sacking of Suella and then the appointment of David Cameron, who's not even an MP. For me, that was like, I, I'm done with the Conservative Party now. Absolutely. I'd been sort of, I always felt like I was strung along by them and that they'd throw out this red meat and you'd, you, you know, anti-woke and you'd sort of think, oh, there's some people trying as Suella was trying, you had Kemi. And then when they did that, I just thought, right, I'm done now. So I'm, I'm just now, you know, in, with, with the smaller parties, I'm not even, I'm just so against the Tory party now. I know some people were already, but for me, that was the moment where I just thought, no, I'm not voting Tory. Mm. And I, I possibly would have done because, you know, Suella and Kemi, and I thought there were some aspects of them that, that you know, that, that they were trying. But that was a real turning point for me. That was the point where I'm, I'm not voting so Tory. So you've got closure. Yes, I've got closure. closure <laughs> that was it. What about you? <laughs> well, I was going to say the same thing, so now I've got to think yeah. of something This reshuffle <laughs> was like a really big deal, um, wasn't it? It passed me by. Well, not just the reshuffle, but so anyway, so let me... Um, <laughs> I'd say it was actually Ukraine and how this year's fortunes for Ukraine. The year started out with so much optimism and hope, I mean, a false hope, I would have said at the time, in Ukraine's ability to push Russia physically out of it, out of its territories altogether. And what the year has, and now of course we see Russia and Ukraine locked, locked almost in a trench warfare stalemate, which may potentially last for years. But a lot of this is down to the failure of Europe. Uh, and I think that's been the, the lesson of the last year is that the any hopes of, of, of a united Europe have been exposed as, as patently false, the incompetence there, the inability for them to produce basic munitions for Ukraine, mm -hmm. you know, relying on America. We, we now have Zelensky there trying to get another uh, pay package from America. You know, Europe, this is a war happening on Europe's borders, and yet they're still looking to the Americans to help them out. Mm -hmm. Russia's on a war footing. 40% of its economy is now dedicated to the production of munitions and so forth, more than their health and education budgets. Meanwhile, you've got 0.1% of, of France and Spain and Italy dedicated to this. They still haven't got up to their 2% of GDP for NATO uh, expenses. And it just seems to me as if the entire structure of Europe is absolutely incapable of coordinating mm. in any way. And it does sort of pose, pose questions as to the, its ability to defend itself in the event that America isn't prepared to do it, it isn't, isn't a threat. And I think that's something geopolitically 
which in this increasingly unstable world, minds need to be focused on. That's quite a memory for, for one year. <laughs> so, um, well, look, when we, uh, when we meet next year, we could be actually under President, well, not under, but then would be President Trump again, mm. actually, couldn't it? I mean, you wouldn't have foreseen that, maybe. I mean, it's extraordinary, mm. what the recovery. A jail cell rather than the Oval Office for his, yeah, for his yeah, first yeah, speech. Yeah, exactly, but, it could be. But I think all it uh, is left for us to do is actually, uh, we do hope you had a lovely Christmas, of course, um, but we want to, probably a little bit premature, I hope it's not bad luck, but anyway, a very, very happy New Year to you. Happy and healthy New Year to you. Happy, happy New, New Year. Year. There we go. So, uh, we shall see you in 2024, okay? And thanks for staying with us all this year. Okay, bye-bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as three pounds per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.